Uh, Lord, we are needy, and, and we feel that. We know that. Uh, your word tells us that, and it's true in experience as well, that we feel a need for you, your word, your spirit. We need each other. And so that's why we've been coming to you, and we come to you again right now. Lord, we need your word. We ask that you would show us the truth about who we are, about who, G- who you are and who Christ is and what you have done for us. Or give us an understanding of your holy word, we pray now, that we might live in light of reality and not live in a world of lies, a world that we manufacture in our own minds. Help us to be corrected where we need to be corrected, challenged where we need to be challenged, comforted where we need comfort, that we might be people conformed to the image of Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen. Well, there's been a lot of uncertainty over the last few months, right? And that is something uh, we've all experienced. It's been a little bit disorienting. And yet there's one thing that we know for sure is that God is reigning on his throne. And nothing has caught him off guard, not in the slightest. And so we are happily trusting his sovereign care of us. And we are also, at the same time, seeking to be wise and to make good decisions about what uh, we are to do as a church during this, this kind of weird, weird time. I'm going to ask you to continue praying for us. I know that you have been. I just want to continue to uh, ask that you specifically pray for us as we kind of think about what it looks like in the coming months to, to follow the Lord as a church and um, thinking through how our gatherings should be. Uh, we're going we're to be making decisions, and we're going to be trying to communicate with you as much as we can about that decision-making process and what we're planning on doing, but just continue in prayer. And for the summer, uh, we do something a little different. We've been doing it the last couple of years, and that is that we turn to the Psalms. I want to invite you to turn to Psalm chapter 6. We turn to the Psalms. I think it's wise that we always have a finger in the Psalms in our lives. We're not just brains. Uh, We are embodied creatures, body and soul, mind, spirit. God has made us people who live and are able to experience a full range of human emotions, bodily experiences, including disease and sickness. We are helped when we look at the Psalms and we see that the experiences we face in life are not uh, singular in the, in the reality that it's not just us that experiences certain things. We read the Psalms and we see that there's kind of an anatomy of the soul that's reflected back to us. In fact, that's what John Calvin said about the Psalms. The Psalms are like an anatomy of all parts of the soul. Some of you took anatomy class and you had all parts of the body, right? You had to look and re- learn all the bones and all the ligaments and all the organs and you you study those things, and it helps you understand how the body works. And uh, it's been said that the Psalms are the anatomy of the soul. If you want to know how your soul works, you got to read the Psalms. If you want to know the inner workings of the heart and the mind and the human condition, you got to read the Psalms. you got to get in touch with the Psalms. So we're going to look at Psalm chapter 6. One of the things we're trying to do now that we're, I mean, we're meeting outdoors, we're, we're every week it seems like we're not quite sure what the weather's going to be like, we're going to try to make these sermons shorter than usual, so to make them more um, 
<laughs> easy to listen to. We know you got your kids there with you. The sun might break through the clouds at any moment. It might be extra hot. Who knows? But we're going to try to do this in a way that's easy to listen to, and yet we're still being fed the Word of God. So go to Psalms chapter 6. Psalm chapter 6. I'm going to go ahead and read it. We're going to see what God has for us in his word. Psalm chapter 6. To the choir master with stringed instruments, according to the Sheminith, Psalm of David. O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am languishing. Heal me, O Lord, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? Turn, O Lord, deliver my life. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. For in death there's no remembrance of you, and Sheol, who will give you praise? I am weary with my moaning. Every night I flood my bed with tears. I drench my couch with my, with my weeping. My eyes waste away because of grief. It grows weak because of all my foes. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. For the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. All my enemies shall be ashamed and greatly troubled. They shall turn back and be put to shame in a moment. So this is a psalm of David, and you go back to the inscription there at the beginning of the psalm. It's something he composed to be sung. Uh, we're not quite sure what a Shemineth is. Some have said it might be indicating that this is to be in the lower register and maybe even sung in a minor key. And if that's true, that would be fitting because this psalm is kind of a sad psalm. I mean, you hear what he's saying. He's asking to not be rebuked. Uh, he's begging for grace. He's asking to be delivered. He's fearing death. Uh, this is a kind, kind of a, a serious, kind of a sad, kind of a sorrowful psalm that David has composed. Uh, there's not much in the background. Sometimes you know the setting of a psalm. You, can you understand, oh, this took place you know, right here, and you can go back into First or Second Samuel. You can read the actual setting uh, that uh, David was in when he wrote the psalm. It's not the case in this. We really just have the text here. And so a lot of people speculate on what's actually going on in the background that would cause him to write this. But all we really know is what's going on in the psalm itself. So here's what I want to do is let's look at the psalm and start to get a picture for what David's going through, okay? You, hear, you see there in verse 1, that David is afraid of God's anger and God's wrath. You see that? O Lord, rebuke me not in your anger, nor discipline me in your wrath. You know, I don't think that David is afraid of rebuke or he's afraid of discipline. In fact, the Scriptures teach repeatedly that people who are wise, and David would be considered wise, they're not afraid of being rebuked or disciplined. They actually welcome that. What he is afraid of, and you see it right there, rebuke me not what? In your anger. Discipline me not what? In your wrath. So what's going on here is David is having a struggle in the soul with some measure of assurance, right? Does God remain angry with me? Is his wrath against me? I think there's a genuine fear. Some of you I've talked to, and this has been true for a huge number of Christians uh, that they have gone through periods of their lives where they have struggled with assurance. And their questions are like David's. It's, 
It's not that they don't want to be disciplined. It's not that they're afraid of being rebuked. The reality is, is they're wondering, does God really love me or is he still mad at me? Is he mad at me for my sin? Does he have wrath against me? This is what's going on. David has a struggle with assurance. He's afraid that God is demonstrating wrath against him. He's afraid that God's angry with him. And let me just say this, by the way. David is not setting out to write a systematic theology. David is trying to be honest about what's going on in his heart. He's writing down his experiences. He's writing down his pain. He's not so concerned about uh, writing down the exact theological truth about who God is and what's really happening. He's merely expressing the sense of what's going on in his heart. He feels in this moment that God might be angry or God might have wrath against him. So there's the fear of God's wrath. What else is going on in David's? You see, if you read, you pay attention, that there's enemies afoot. There are foes. Look at verse 7. At the end of it, he talks about all my foes. You see, in verse 8, he refers to people who are called workers of evil. You see, in verse 11, he talks about people who are his enemies. And so what is probably happening here is that David thinks God must be angry with him, God has wrath against him, and he thinks that God is expressing his anger and wrath against David by appointing enemies, evildoers, uh, foes against him. That these, the presence of enemies in David's life is an indication that God has turned away from David. That's how he's feeling. In fact, if you look at verse 4, you see the first word of verse 4? Turn. Who is he talking to? God, turn, O Lord. That word turn is the same word for repent, the same word for return. He's saying, God, turn around. What does that imply? He believes God has turned away from him. At least that's how he's feeling right now. He feels that God is facing the opposite way. He's not paying attention to me. It must be because he's mad. He's appointed foes against me. I must be God's enemy right now. Return, Lord. Turn away. Turn back to me. Turn away from facing against me. That's how he feels. He feels there's enemies. Uh, But additionally, look at this. He feels it in his own body. In fact, there are some that read this psalm and and see it as David crying out because he's sick. There's a physical ailment that he's he's experiencing. Uh, There's a, a, a way of thinking that has kind of infiltrated the church it started probably, if you trace it back to Plato, Plato introduced a lot of unhealthy, wrong ways of thinking into the church. And one of the things he did was so separate the mind and the body that the two almost had nothing to do with each other. You know, you over-spiritualize it and then you act like your body doesn't matter. And uh, that's not really what the Bible teaches. It's certainly not what the Hebrews would have thought. Uh, when, uh, the Hebrews knew, and, when da- and David knew when he wrote this, you are a body and you are a soul. You are a soul and you are a body. You are both and both matter. And the way you think affects your body and your body can affect the way you think. You know that to be true, right? You ever, you ever uh, had some big event that you had to prepare for and maybe it was something up front and you had to perform and you got nervous? And what did you feel in your gut? What do we say? You got butterflies in your stomach? Why is that happening? It's because your mind actually has the capacity to affect your body to make you change your, your, how your body feels. You can feel sick because of your mind. And there are experiences in life when your mind can be so 
uh, overthrown by worry and anxiety that it actually begins to affect your physical health. This is what's happening here. He is so worked up in anxiety because he's afraid that God might have turned away from him. He's begging God, don't rebuke me in your anger. Don't discipline me in your wrath. He's so worried that, look at the words in verse 2. I'm languishing. That word languishing could be translated, uh, I'm drooping. (laughs) It's actually, in other places, describing a plant that has not been watered, and it's been out in the sun, and it's drooping down because it has no more life in it. I'm languishing, God. I'm dying here. I don't feel well. My bones are troubled, it says. The word troubled is associated with the word for fever, the word for a deep shaking, a trembling. What David is describing is his whole body having these shakes, okay? The whole body kind of quivering. He has this inward turmoil that is resulting in him feeling weak, feeling worn out, feeling troubled. I think we might call, call this in, in our lingo uh, a panic attack. You know, your, your heart starts beating, your breath, you can't breathe right. In your anxiety, you start feeling it in your gut. In other words, the anxiety that begins in your mind and your spirit is actually working itself in your physical body. You start to feel a certain way because your mind is thinking a certain way. Physical symptoms are accompanying emotional distress. He, he then goes in verse th- 3, he talks about my soul is greatly troubled. And so what's happening in his body is actually a reflection of what's going on in his soul. His soul is greatly troubled and, and shaky and wobbly. And so his body feels the same way. He's, he's trembling, he's feverish, he's weak, he's languishing. He's crying out in verse 4, deliver my life. And I think what he actually means is that he's afraid of dying. He's wondering, is, am, I, am, I, is my, is my health deteriorating, deteriorating here? Am I going to survive this? This is also why I think he says in verse 5, there's no remembrance of you in death. If I die, I'm going to go to Sheol. Sheol is the, the place of the dead with not really a reference to heaven or hell. It's just referring to dying and no longer being in the land of the living. Who will give you praise? I think what he, what he means to communicate here is, I think David's afraid of death. I think David's not ready to die in this particular moment. He doesn't want to go. He doesn't want to uh, lose his life, and he feels so weak. He feels so languishing, so troubled, body and soul together. He feels uh, nauseous, I would imagine, with the, the kind of anxiety he's feeling. Lord, save me. I'm, I feel like I'm going to die here. I feel like I'm losing my life. I feel like my health is deteriorating. Verse 6, I'm weary with my moaning. Moaning's the sound of grief and pain erupting from the mouth of someone no longer concerned with etiquette. Every night I flood my bed with tears. Normally, you're feeling this way and you can get to sleep, and at least your sleep is a break from the pain, but not for David. He's trying to sleep at night, but his bed is soaking up with tears, his couched is the same because he's weeping. You see what's happening here is this, David is suffering, body and soul, soul and bodies. He is spiritually feeling sick, and he is physically feeling sick. I want to learn from this. 
I want us to learn from this. What do we learn from a man of God in anguish? What do we learn from a man of God, a man who's called a man after God's own heart, who is suffering this way? I mean, some of us might be embarrassed to admit that we felt this way. And we have, to, we have some lessons to learn by looking at this. This is a man of God, and this is recorded in God's Word. So, so this is a, a lesson for us. And I want to draw out four lessons from this text. Lesson number one for us. We need to see that despair can exist in God's people. Now, it's a certain species of despair that's not quite identical with the despair that the world may feel. But this kind of sadness and grief and sorrow can exist in godly people. You know that? That godly people who love the Lord can write these types of things? I was watching an interview with John MacArthur and John Piper uh, on a stage, and, and a man named Justin Taylor was interviewing them. And these guys have been pastors for many years. They have big and fruitful ministries. And, and the interviewer asked him a question. The question was, uh, what do you do when you're discouraged in ministry? And John Piper starts to answer. And um, if you're familiar with his ministry, he's a you know, highly emotional man, a preacher who lets his emotions out when he's preaching. He's been very effective because of it. And he begins speaking about how he's had struggles with depression. And he tells a story of when he was 40 years old. He uh, found himself on the front porch sobbing. And when his wife came out and said, John, what's going on? What, what's the matter? Why are you crying? He looked up at her and said, I have no idea. I have no idea. I can't tell you why I'm crying this way. And in the interview, John MacArthur's looking across the stage at him with this puzzled look like, what? And the question goes to him. He goes, I have no idea what it would even be like to be crying and not know why I'm crying. I, I, I can't even identify with that. That seems so, so foreign uh, to the way he processes things. He says, I've never been depressed a day in my life. Now, I just tell you that to tell you that godly people are composed differently. They're, they're not all the same. And there can be godly men and godly women right here this morning who read Psalm 6 and they go, that's what I'm feeling. That's it. I, I'm languishing. I'm drooping. I'm weak. I'm sad. I'm grieved. And I don't always know why. And I feel sick sometimes and I can't sleep at night. And there might be others of you going, huh? Like you read Psalm 6 and you go, like what? Like who, who? Snap out of it, David. Come on. Why, why? Like you got to be able to get out of this, right? Like come on, David. And here's what I want to say. We have to recognize as a church, both exist. And, and if you read Psalm 6 and you go, I've been there. I've been there for a long time. I want to tell you that happens to Christians. And I want you to take courage in that uh, because one of the enemy's greatest tricks is to convince you that when you feel this way, you are never going to be understood, that you're all alone, that people around you couldn't possibly know what you're going through, and you're going to be tempted to hold it in because you'll feel ashamed of ever talking about it to someone else. 
And I want to say David was there. And I want to say if you've been there, I want to say that many people, men and women from church history, have also been there. Charles Spurgeon was there. David Brainerd was there. Martin Luther was there. And dare I say the Apostle Paul was there when he said he despaired of life itself. And so if you've been there, I want to say, hey, this happens. This is part of living in a cursed, fallen world with a cursed, fallen mind and body, and we are undergoing redemption, and we will not (laughs) get through this until we're home to glory, right? And so if you're also on the other side, you're a person who says, I have no idea what this would be like. I read Psalm 6, and I just blank because I don't understand what it would be like to weep every night, I want you to tell you this. This happens to Christians. I got the same message for you. This happens to Christians. In fact, one of the things we do every time we have new members, we're going to be doing it at the end of the uh, service today. We have our new members come up and we read the affirmations of commitment, commitments we have toward one another. One of the things we say is this. We affirm our commitment to rejoice with those who are rejoicing and with tenderness and sympathy bear the burdens and sorrows of those who weep. We're acknowledging there are burdens and there are sorrows of people who are weeping among us in our membership. And if you have never experienced anything like that, what you do need to understand, first of all, you can praise the Lord for that. You can say, thank you, Lord, that I haven't gone to that dark night. But you can also say, however, it is now my responsibility to know my brothers and sisters who struggle this way and to help them bear their burdens. To bear their burdens, to weep with those who weep. You see, we need to come along these types when the nights are dark. We need to be helpful. And if you're a sufferer of this type of pain and agony, you need to be willing to talk about it. This happens to Christians, friends. I want us to just think about this. This is complex. Like sometimes we talk about counseling one another, and it's a really important thing that we learn as a church to counsel one another. But I also want to point out, this isn't simplistic stuff. Okay, imagine this. Put yourself in this scenario. You go to David, and you say, David, help me understand you. What's going on? Because that's what good friends do, right? They will ask each other questions. They'll draw out the heart. They'll try to help one another through. And to help, you really got to know what's going on. And so imagine you go to Dave and you say, hey, David, what's going on? You know, he could tell you many things, and he wouldn't be lying to you. He, he could say, um, I've sinned against God, and I'm afraid he won't forgive me. I'm really struggling with assurance. He could say, there are enemies who hate me, and it breaks my heart. He could say, I, I have these tremblings, these, these shakes. I feel really weak, these panic attacks I can't control. He could say, I I feel so depressed. I I cry myself to sleep every night. All of those things would be true. Now, if you're trying to help David, how do you help him? Right? There's complexity to humanity. There's layers here. And the way we actually help is by being a listening ear, a friend who comes alongside to bear burdens, to weep with them. And here's our next point, to lament with them. Secondly, the lesson is we need to learn to lament. There are some who have categorized Psalm chapter 6 as a penitential psalm. I don't see it that way because I don't see any confession of sin. I see this as a lament. This is a lament because he is 
He's crying out in grief and sorrow and despair, and he's bringing his agony to God. This is a psalm written, written by a hurting person for hurting people. And if you are a hurting person, then this psalm is for you. And we learn how to process our own pain by reading it. Note some features of this. Note the, the honesty. He is brutally honest. He is raw in this, isn't he? I mean, he's holding nothing back. Like I said, some of us might be embarrassed to admit we cry ourselves to sleep or we moan or we're grieved or we're this sorrowful. We might even be embarrassed to say such things. Well, he's raw and he's honest, isn't he? He's just putting it all out there on the page. This is what true lament is. It's, it's You're not trying to, to have this perfect approach to God where you mark every word and make sure it's exactly right. You come and you're trying to be honest. You ever pray that way? You think God might hear you more if you're more eloquent, you're more theologically accurate? I think it's amazing that in this text, David is completely honest. He knows that God is big enough to handle all that he has to give God. Secondly, I want you to notice this. As much as it's raw and as much as it's honest, it's composed. In other words, it's written down. This is poetry, you know, right? The psalm is a poem. That this is actually beautiful Hebrew poetry. So you see what's happening? What does that mean? It means that David, as he's suffering, he's going to write, and he wants to write completely honestly, and yet he's crafting words. He's, he's picking you know, rhyme and rhythm and crafting a poem. He's putting his experience to words. I think this is an important lesson. I think this gives us uh, a legitimacy to writing things down in your prayers. Some of you have maybe been keeping prayer journals. Some of you have written down your laments. And I would say that David has done that as well, and I think it's a good practice. Here's what happens. Often when we are the ones in, in agony, when we're the ones in anguish, uh, we have these fears that kind of live on the peripheral. They like, they're right here. We sense that they're there, and, and we let them uh, weigh us down, and they, we, we let them uh, control our minds and our hearts. And I think by writing, sometimes we're able to bring them to the center, look at them, evaluate our fears, evaluate our anxieties. And, and when you're writing them down, you're able to clarify what it is you're thinking and what is your feeling. You can look at it. You can see it. You can uh, stare at it. And as you do that, you're able to settle in your heart um, and, and respond more with truth rather than fearful emotion. He's writing. I think it's a good lesson. As we learn to lament, we learn to be raw and to be honest. And yet I also think it's valuable if you're suffering, one of the best things you maybe could do right now would be to get a pen and get a paper and in prayer compose what is going on in your mind and your heart. Try to put it into words. Remind yourself of the truth. Note his requests. Verse 1, don't be angry with me. Don't be wrathful against me. Verse 2, be gracious to me. Verse, the end of verse 2, heal me. Verse 4, deliver my life. 
So he's bringing his raw feelings to God. He's composing his thoughts, writing them down. And then he's begging, it sounds like. Please, and he's coming unashamedly, unabashedly to God with all these requests. You know, isn't it amazing that even though he feels that God has turned, remember verse 4, he feels that God has turned away, where does he go? We just sang those words, where else can I go, Lord? Where else can I go? You have the words of eternal life. That's kind of what David's thinking right now. Uh, Even though I feel like you might be distant, I have nowhere else to go. I'm coming to you, Lord. I'm coming to you, God. I'm bringing it all to you. You're the only one who could answer my requests. So don't be angry with me. Be gracious. Deliver me. Heal me. I think that many churches have lost the ability to lament. If we're trying to just always make people feel good in our church services and try to make it so it's some great, amazing experiences and the songs that we sing are upbeat and fun and a positive message, I think we actually begin to hurt the church. Uh, Carl Truman wrote an article called, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? That's a great question, isn't it? If you're in Psalm 6, your life is in Psalm 6, and you come to church, and all that you can sing are these chipper songs that are kind of surfing on the, on the surface that don't really deal with the agony that's going on in your heart, that's hard to identify with. You know, it used to be that churches would literally sing the Psalms, and so there was a song for every possible emotion that you would feel. And he says, so Carl Truman says in his article, What Can Miserable Christians Sing? He he says this, by excluding, by excluding the cries of loneliness, dispossession, and desolation from its worship, the church has effectively silenced and excluded the voices of those who are themselves lonely, dispossessed, and desolate. By doing so, It has implicitly endorsed the banal aspirations of consumerism and generated an insipid, trivial, and unrealistically triumphalist Christianity and confirmed its impeccable credentials as a club for the complacent. That is quite a paragraph. And what he's saying is if we exclude the songs of lament from the singing of the church, then we are excluding real Christians who actually are like David. And they need to give voice to the cries of the heart that are cries of agony. Do you know how to lament? Do you lament? Do you lament over sickness that you're experiencing? Do you lament over disease that is racking your body or your beloved family member's body? Do you lament over your wayward child, your lost parents, your hard-hearted sibling? Do you lament over infertility? Do you lament over job loss? Do you lament over your own indwelling sin? If you've never lamented, let me invite you to follow David's lead and lament, bring it to God. It is okay to have these feelings, but it is not okay to hold them in and act like everything's okay. There's a biblical way to process. And it's like what Psalm 6 does. You come raw to God. You bring your request to him. 
You lay it at his feet in, in your grief. Here's our third lesson. Remember God's promises. At the end of the psalm, after kind of processing all that's going on in his heart and mind, he says in verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea. The Lord accepts my prayer. This, this sounds so different from the first part of the psalm, doesn't it? Suddenly, there's this shout of triumph. He's heard me. He's accepted my prayer. My enemies are going to be ashamed. Greatly troubled, they shall turn back and be put to shame. He's confident that God has heard him. He's called upon God. He's, he's enlisted God's help. And now he's make, he, he makes these three declarations. He has heard my weeping. He has heard my plea. He has accepted my prayer. I want you to just look at that, that phrase. He has heard the sound of my weeping. It's a beautiful, poetic phrase. In Hebrew, that word sound could be translated and often is translated voice. The voice of my weeping. Spurgeon, reflecting on this, he says in a way that only really he can, he says, is there a voice in weeping? Does weeping speak? In what language doth it utter its meaning? meaning? Why, in that universal language which is known and understood in all the earth and even in heaven above, weeping is the eloquence of sorrow. Is it not sweet to believe that our tears are understood even when words fail? Let us learn to think of tears as liquid prayers. <laughs> He's heard me. I may not have even been able to make words with my mouth because my weeping, and yet God has heard the voice of my weeping. He hears me. And David, after processing, comes back to this glorious reality that God has made promises to his people, that God has made promises to be with his people, to hear his people, to draw near to his people. He has said this, was, this is true. And he comes back to this great reality. And he has this triumphal ending of the psalm. He has heard me. He has accepted my prayer. And he's saying that. The only reason he's able to say that is just God has explicitly made these kinds of promises to him. In the Old Testament, God has made promises to be the people or to be the God of his people, to hear the prayers of his people, to be near to the brokenhearted, to be near to the contrite in spirit. It's been said that Luther sometimes, after wrestling with God in prayer, agonizing in lament, would come out of his prayer closet shouting, Visimus, Visimus is in Latin, and it means we have conquered. We have conquered. I love the imagery that we can come in with all our burdens and all our pains and all our agonies, and we can then walk out of the prayer closet in victory, saying, he has heard me. And regardless of whether you feel it, regardless of whether the burdens of your sickness actually lift, you can know victory is mine. He has heard me. Now, Christian, think about this. David starts out this psalm afraid that God may be angry with him. 
But there may be wrath left in God's heart against him for his sin. I wonder if some of you have felt that way. You've asked the question, am I really going to go to heaven when I die? Could it possibly be true that my sins are all totally forgiven, that God actually loves me? Maybe you look at yourself and you go, man, I'm such a sinner, such a horrible sinner. I, I messed up this week. I messed up the week before that. And I'm trying, but man, I just keep falling back into sin after sin after sin. And no matter how much I'm trying, I'm just, uh, the sin is killing me. And it can't be that God loves me. It can't be that I'm actually redeemed. It must be that I am just lost. There's no way God loves me. Listen, David didn't have the same thing we do. When those thoughts creep into our minds, what do we do, Christian? Where do we look? What promise has God made to us, the church? You know where we look? You look back at the cross. Romans 8, 5. God shows his love for us. This is a demonstration. The cross is something that is to be demonstrating a reality. What reality? God shows his love. If you ever wondered if, the, if God who created all things loves you, what do you do? You look to the cross. Why? Because God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That the wrath of God that you deserved, that the wrath of God that should have fallen on you fell on the cross of Jesus Christ and he took it upon himself willingly so that you, in trusting him, no longer have to fear any wrath, any anger. If God's wrath is a cup, it has been already poured out and emptied on the cross and there is no wrath left for you to face. There is no more wrath in heaven. All that heaven has for you now is blessing. And every spiritual blessing has been poured out on you, Christian. We look at the cross. And so we can come in our agony, in our pain to God, and we can say, victory, he has heard. Victory, he hears my prayers. Victory, he will deliver me. I know this to be true because I know he loves me, and I am his, and I know that's the case because I look at the cross. The cross is my only hope. The cross is everything to me. Now, before we look at our fourth point, I want to draw your attention to verse 3. My soul also is greatly troubled. Greatly troubled. Save me for the sake of your steadfast love. Sorry, that's verse 4. Steadfast love is something that David is banking on. His soul is greatly troubled. And at the end of verse 3, he says this. But you, O Lord, how long? But you, O Lord, and you might think he's going to turn and he's going to say, but you, O Lord, are are faithful. But you, O Lord, are a refuge. He doesn't do that. But you, O Lord, and he cuts himself off. How long? That's his question. It's been a question that Christians have asked throughout the ages. How long, O Lord? 
In other words, what we have here is David knows he will be delivered. What he doesn't have is a timetable. He knows that pain and agony have a shelf life. He doesn't know how long, though. How long are, O Lord? Uh, We know the promises, friends, church. We know that God has promised complete redemption, right? We have these promises, but we don't know how long we have to suffer. We don't know how long the sickness lasts. We don't know how long the agony is, is in our lives. We don't know. How long will I have to endure the agonies of a racked body? How long, O oh Lord? How long will I endure the panic and the shivers and the fear? How long, O oh Lord, will I have to face enemies? How long, O oh Lord, will I struggle with these issues? Jesus cares about your body and soul, and one day your body and soul will be totally redeemed. You will not have the same struggle with sin, and you will not have the same struggles with your physical ailing body. There will come a day that you will not deal with those things anymore. And so you are allowed to ask, how long? Because how long, you know what that implies? There's an end to it. You will not suffer forever. If you're in Psalm 6, Psalm 6 will not last forever for you. The tears will not last forever. They will last through the night, but joy is in the morning. There is coming a day that sorrows and griefs and pain and agony and brokenness, all those things are washed away as you enter into the new creation where none of those things are allowed to enter. That's our destiny, church. Until then, we cry out in lament, how long? And we don't know the answer. And we are not here to say, if you just have enough faith, everything's going to be better in your life. Just have enough faith that sickness will go away and life will be easy. We're not saying that because the Bible doesn't say that. When we say how long, we do know that there's an end date to our suffering. We do know that in general, God has said, this will not last forever. We don't have a specific as to when. But we do know God's answer is, how long, O Lord? Not long. Life's a vapor. Not long. Life's like a shadow. So here's lesson number four, friends. Be patient. Bear up in your suffering. Look to God and ask him, how long, O Lord? I almost can't read the end of the Chronicles of Narnia without shedding tears. The very end of the last battle, this great story concludes with the children and the animals, the the talking animals that have kind of become this crew, and they're racing through the new Narnia. It's after all has been done, and they're racing through, and they're finding that they can run, and they're not getting tired. They're just running and leaping, and their bodies are not feeling any pain, and they're just amazed at the new creation that they're in. And C.S. Lewis describes it like this. He goes, the difference between the old Narnia and the new Narnia was like that. Then the new one was a deeper country. Every rock and flower and blade of grass looked as if it meant more. 
I can't describe it any better than that. If you get there, you'll know what I mean. And then he describes that unicorn. If you remember the end of the story, the unicorn, his name is Jewel, and he sums up what everyone's feeling. It says this, he stamped his right forehoof on the ground, and he neighed, and he cried out, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all of my life, though I never knew it until now. I love it. Because there will come a day, friends, that we will be entering that country. We'll say, this is it. This is what I've been longing for. It's what I've been always been hoping for. It's my destiny that Christ is giving me. And all along this life, I have only had hints and tastes of that glorious destiny that God has promised to us. But friends, there is coming a day that we enter in the new heavens and the new earth and all tears are wiped away and all pain is wiped away and we're given new glorified bodies and we will say, this is it. This is what I've always wanted. And it's mine. And it's ours for all eternity. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. Glory to God for his great love. Thank you, Jesus, for the cross that paid for my sin because I deserved hell. And you gave me heaven by grace alone. And so we ask, how long, O Lord? How long? And yet we ask in hope because we do believe that there is a country that is our home, our true home. And one day we'll be there. And all weeping and all lament will be no more as we see our Savior face to face. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for giving us language that we can use to express life in a fallen world and the difficulties we experience. Lord, I pray for all of those who are experiencing a Psalm 6 type of pain, fear, anxiety, worry, sickness. Lord, I pray that they would be encouraged by remembering that this is part of what it means to walk through a fallen world. And yet I pray as they do that, that they would ask, they would learn to lament and they would ask the Lord how long and be comforted by the reality that there is an end date to suffering. And for those of us who don't experience pain in this world the same way, Lord, I pray that they would be sympathetic and tender-hearted and bearing burdens with those around them that do, that we would really unite together and recognize we all need each other. We all need each other. Lord, give us a heavenly perspective that doesn't look for satisfaction ultimately in this life, but ultimately in you. And as we do that, Lord, we ask that we are shaped into a church that lives solely for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Before we finish this morning, uh, we're going to welcome our new members, and we're going to welcome them. I'm going to have them come up. So Mary Crum, looks like you're already on your way up here, and Felix and Triana, 
and Amon and Dudan and Daniel and Iris. I see you guys. So you guys go ahead and work your way up. You can stand just to the right of me here. So it's a celebration that we get to welcome new members this morning, and we will also have a baptism as well. So as you guys work your way up here. I'm also going to have members, if you are a current member of Grace Rancho, I invite you to stand with me. We're going to read through the affirmations of commitment, right? Eric mentioned one of those this morning. We're going to read through those again. So I invite you, it's on page 10, and so just follow along with me, and we will read. Everybody up here? Okay, so if you're, follow along with me as we read the affirmations of commitment. Since we have been brought by divine grace to repent of our sin and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, having been baptized upon our profession of faith in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Spirit, we now remember the commitments we've made towards one another. We affirm our allegiance to Jesus Christ, to live in this world as his disciples, and having counted the cost, we consider serving Jesus Christ a greater privilege than anything the world has to offer. We affirm our desire to weave our lives together in brotherly love as we are members of one another, exercising tender care for each other, faithfully admonishing and encouraging one another as occasion may require. We affirm we will not forsake the assembly of ourselves together, nor neglect to pray for ourselves and others. We affirm our commitment to making disciples, starting with whomever God has placed within our care, Raising them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we will seek the salvation of our family and friends. We affirm our commitment to rejoice with those who are rejoicing, and with tenderness and sympathy, bear the burdens and sorrows of those who weep. We affirm our commitment, by God's help, to live holy lives in the world, denying ungodliness and worldly lust, remembering that we have been buried with Christ and raised to new life, that sin no longer has dominion over us and that we are empowered by the Holy Spirit to walk in holiness. We affirm our commitment to submit ourselves to this church family, including the specific elders who are uniquely responsible for keeping watch over our souls. We affirm our responsibility for the continuing work of the ministry in this church, upholding the value of corporate worship, the observance of the ordinances, church discipline, and sound doctrine. We affirm our desire to contribute cheerfully and regularly to the support of the ministry, the expanse of the church, the relief of the poor among us, and the spread of the gospel to the nations as the Lord provides opportunity. And we affirm that if we move from here, we will communicate our intentions to our leaders, seeking their input and prayers, eager to unite with a like-minded church and continue serving as God allows. So I'm going to ask two questions. The first will be to you as new members, and that is, do you publicly affirm these commitments as members of Grace Church of Rancho Cucamonga? And then to the members that are standing here today, we have a question for you. Do you commit and receive these people as members of Grace Church of Rancho Cucamonga? Amen. So join me in prayer. Michael 